Hello, and welcome to One Single Thought, the podcast where two Christian single women take theological deep dives and bring perspectives on life mixed with levity and joy. Welcome back, everyone. We are at episode 36 of One Single Thoughts, and we are mixing things up today, Rose. Yes, we are, because Heather is starting the episode. Yes, if you haven't noticed. And usually Rose does it, but I'm starting today because we are doing things a little differently. I'm going to be talking to Rose today about her book that's coming out in just over a week on December 1st. We're very yes. excited, Rose. I'm very excited. It seems yes. a little surreal. Can't believe it's already here. I know. And we thought we would just take some time to talk to you about it because we want to know about the inspiration behind your book, what motivated you to write the book. And for that reason, like I said, we're going to focus this episode just on the book. We're not going to do any kind of crazy questions or Ricky thoughts. Ricky's going to take a break for Thanksgiving. Yeah. He's taking a day <laughs> off. So as we normally do, we will have a one single thought, but like we do with interviewed guests. And even though you're not a guest, Rose, you're my co-host. Right. Uh, we will save our one single thought at the end because we want to take it from you, your mm-hmm. perspective. And so we'll just get started with the interview. We'll just jump right in. Sounds great. Okay. So, Rose, I'll just get started. Uh, Just tell me about your interest in writing. How did that begin? Have you always wanted to be a writer? What point in your life did that desire grow in you? I can't say that I can pinpoint the exact time. I do know that I have it in my genes. (laughs) (laughs) Because on my mom's side, my granddaddy, her, my granddaddy was an extremely eloquent writer. I have some of his letters. In fact, I have a letter from probably the 1930s or 40s where he wrote out what he wanted for his funeral. Mm-hmm. And it, it was very eloquent and just what he wanted people to remember him for. And so my granddaddy was a great writer. Um, I had a cousin on my dad's side that published, self-published a book of poetry. So I come by it honest. But when I got to high school, I wanted to do something. I wanted to be involved in some extracurricular activity. And I wasn't super outgoing in high school. I didn't play sports. And I was just kind of intrigued about joining the newspaper staff. So when I became a junior, which was when you could join for your Mm -hmm. junior and senior year, I tried out for that or applied or whatever I had to do at the time and was able to write for the newspaper staff and for the our, my school newspaper and that was a mm-hmm. lot of fun shortly after that um, when I went to college you know I went to to business co- business college and, and went to work so in 2005 I started a blog uh, which mm-hmm. they were kind of popular back then yeah I did it because I needed a creative outlet I had been working for publishing companies for years and then had stepped out of that for a year and felt like I had not had anything creative come out of me for a year and so I decided let me start a blog because they were popular and everybody was doing it and so I did and it was at that point that I began to realize I really loved to write and I really had contemplated writing a book back then mm-hmm. so I guess probably since 2005 have I been really serious about wanting to write a book and I never could land the plane or yeah. <laughs> decide I, I sort of said I was like Mr. Holland in Mr. Holland's Opus. Have you seen that movie? Yeah. So Mr. Holland, no spoiler alert, but it's a pretty old movie. If you haven't seen it, it's really, really good. I cry at the end every time. Hmm. But Mr. Holland always wanted to write an opus, but he taught music in schools. Yeah. 
He was, you know, mentoring his students. He had a son who was deaf and life got in the way. And that's kind of how it felt like for me when I wanted to write a book, life just got in the way. I was busy working and serving at my church, pouring into the lives of young girls and just never had the time to write a book. So you talk about life getting in the way, which it does for a lot of people. We talked mm-hmm. about hobbies last time. We did. <laughs> where, like episode. life gets in the way of stuff. So was that the only barrier you had uh, that kept you from writing? Or was there something else that was kind of hindering you, holding you back from doing that? There definitely was other barriers. One was I didn't know how to write a book. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, where do you start to learn that? I guess, you know, you can Google and I did find a lot of articles and stuff on it. I reached out to someone that was working in the Christian publishing arena at that time to ask her for some advice. I never heard back from her. Mm. And so I just really didn't know what to do. I was, I had ideas. I thought about, you know, I could do a devotional because that's a lot of what my blog posts were. Mm -hmm. I I had an outline written for a singleness book. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I thought, well, I could do something on discipleship. I mean, there were just, there were a lot of ideas I had, but I really just didn't know how to get, get into it, yeah. get started. Yeah. But then you eventually found a writing cohort. So tell me about that. What was that like and how did you get involved in that? I was listening to podcasts one day years ago and I heard a lady being interviewed. Her name was Joy Egridges Reed. Mm-hmm. And I say her maiden her maiden name because her dad is Emerson Egridges. He's a famous Christian author. He's written a real famous book on marriage called Love and Respect. But she was being interviewed, and she had, uh, uh, at that time, just had a speaker's agency. But she was super funny. Her and her husband had just relocated to Paris from Portland, Oregon. And I just thought that would be so cool to follow her on Instagram and, and just follow their adventure to, to Paris. I think I love Paris, and... So I did, and in following her, I saw her agency morph into not only a speaking agency, but also a writer's, a literary agency. Mm -hmm. So she had Punchline Agency, which, you know, Punchline being the, her speaker kind of hook. And then she decided to expand into literary, and she was a literary agent that was representing a bunch of different authors. So it was fun to watch her agency grow. Well, then... Around the beginning of 2021, while I was in the middle of all of my health issues, she'd announced that she had decided to do a writing cohort where she would take a small group of people interested in writing and and authoring a book and take them through an intensive 30 days to write a book proposal. Mm-hmm. And, you know, she said, I've, I'm a literary agent. I've done this for years. She did it with her dad, now on her own. And she said... You know, I can get I can get everybody through this in 30 days. And so I decided to apply. I thought, why not? I knew mm-hmm. I was getting ready to have surgery for my knee replacement. But at that point, I thought I would have surgery and <laughs> it, at very at very minimum would be home from rehab by March to be able to yeah. work on this. And I applied. And of course, you know, the, the rest of the story, I wasn't. I tore my patella tendon. Mm-hmm. Well, when I applied, I actually was accepted, and I was so excited to be in the first one. And I had to tell her once that happens, you know, Joy, I can't do this because I'm going to have to have more surgery. And so mm-hmm. I was kind of devastated. Not kind of. I was devastated. And so then, of course, things, you know, carried on. And, and finally, around the end of the summer, middle of the summer, 
I was waiting for my, my knee incision to heal and she, you know, was having another cohort in October of 2021. And if anybody knows my timeline of my story, we know where this is going. But mm-hmm. I asked her, hey, because she had told me, no problem, Rose. You yeah. can just let me know. You can be in the next one or a future one. And so in October, I said, hey, you know, up for the October one, I'd love to do it. She's like, great, I'll put you in. Emailed me, you know, I was I was so close to, to be in that mm-hmm. one that she'd already emailed me my documents, my yeah. Google Docs, all of that. And then that's when I ended up back in the hospital with an infection. Mm-hmm. And then that was the act three of my mm-hmm. my journey when I eventually lost my leg. So I had to tell her, I'm sorry, Joy, I've, had, I've got to drop out again. This is what's going on. Finally, in May of 2022, when I got out of rehab from losing my leg, I decided to tell her, hey, I, I really want to do this now. And you know, Heather, because I was freaking out something was yeah. going to happen yeah. when I yeah. said I would do it. But thankfully, the Lord protected me and I was mm-hmm. able to do it. Funny story is that Joy, after we got, after we went through the cohort and got to know each other, she said, I thought for a while you were catfishing me. She said, because <laughs> nobody could go through all this stuff that you were going through. I just felt like yeah. that couldn't be true. But it was. And I was able to do the, the cohort and it really was an intensive 30 days, but when I left, I had a 42-page book proposal that you could take to agents and publishers. Mm -hmm. So if somebody wanted to get involved in a cohort like that, what would they do? If you go to, and I'll put the link in the show notes, Mm -hmm. if you go to punchlineagency.com, there's a tab for literary, and on that page you can apply. Mm -hmm. The cool thing is that they've expanded a lot, so they also do more crash courses. They have, I think it's... These may not start, this cohorts and things aren't going to start back up until 2024. Joy just had her third baby and she's just back from maternity leave. But there's a crash course that's in 90 minutes that'll walk you through the proposal a little Mm -hmm. bit more in depth and she'll answer questions. The cohort, I'm not sure when the first one will be, but you can apply there and then they'll contact you if you're accepted. The other thing they've expanded into is they now have a publishing arm. There's three types of publishing avenues you can use. You can go the traditional route where you partner with a publisher. You can go self-publishing where you do it all yourself, every bit Mm -hmm. of it. But now hybrid publishing is becoming a bigger thing these days. And what that means is it's kind of the best of both worlds. You still self-publish, but you work with someone who has experience to help guide you through the process. So they started, I believe in June of 2021, They started Punchline Publishers, Mm -hmm. which is a publishing imprint that's a hybrid publisher and is actually the imprint I'm using for my book. So I've Mm -hmm. worked with Punchline Publishers to get my book out in the world. And it's for someone who has ever wants, if you ever want to self-publish, it is a lot of work. They, it is worth it to engage with someone like Punchline because they walk you through everything and make sure you don't miss something. I, after my launch meeting, I got a specific timeline that I could follow step by step. And it's built, it's really been a great experience to work with them. And you have to have your manuscript done before you, you come to them, which is unlike a traditional publisher, mm. uh, unless you're writing a fiction book. But I chose to go that route. If you go to their page, their website, you can apply for a future cohort. Cool. And so in in your book that's coming out, you decided to write your life story. So that's what your book is about. Mm -hmm. 
what motivated you to write about that? And was that something you were thinking of doing when you first joined the cohort? So when I first joined the cohort, like the very first time in March, 2021, mm -hmm. I kind of thought I would write only about my health journey at that time, which I had no idea that that was <laughs> not a very, that was just so early on in the health journey. And then once I had gone through what I went through, I decided at that point that I wanted to write my story and my whole life story. And part of what I think was a hard thing to do in writing my life story is being that vulnerable about telling about my life story. Yeah. So Heather, you've read my book. Yes. Heather was one of my copy editors and I was pretty, would you say I was pretty vulnerable in the book? Yeah, I would say so. Yeah, for sure. There's a lot of things that I share that a lot of people never, if they've even known me my whole life, didn't mm -hmm. have probably not, would not know because I wasn't real public about some of the challenges I had physically growing up and, mm -hmm. and that sort of thing. So knowing that I was going to write my life story meant I was going to have to be vulnerable. Even when I was going through developmental editing, Amelia, who is the developmental editor that I worked with through Punchline, said, you know, you're writing about the facts. She said, I want you to, I want to hear more about your feelings. And I mean, that came from my newspaper days where I was, yeah. I was good about, you know, reporting on something. So I had to really <laughs> dig deep and share what I was feeling, not only in this recent health journey, but just throughout my life. So that was hard and that's vulnerable. And that's a little bit of the, you know, anxiety or nervousness I have with the book right. hitting the world that people are going to read this and they're going to know a lot about me. They're going to judge you. Yeah. They're going to be like, <laughs> wow, you know, you, you went through that, you did that. That's what, you know, it's just, yeah. it's, I didn't of course tell every little bit about my story, but I've told enough that people even that have known me for years will, will be maybe surprised mm -hmm. about. The title of your book is Dancing in the Valley. Finding life and joy amidst the shadow of death, nipping at my heels. And so where, where did that title come from? What made you come up with that title? Sometime during the journey, I always posted every month. I mean, obviously there were, in mm -hmm. the beginning, more frequent posts on social media. But I had a lot of people that it was hard to keep everybody up to date. And people would ask, you know, how are you doing? And what's the update? And so I, I began to update once a month just what was going on. And there was some time, and I can't pinpoint when, that my update, I said that I, something about learning to dance in the valley. Mm -hmm. And sometime, somewhere along the way, I had been reading scripture and I had thought about Psalm 23. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. And that verse was a verse that Jeff Eliff, our associate pastor, used at my mom's funeral in 2000 and he made the statement that you know as a believer you know we're not always afraid of death we know where we're going but it's the valley of the shadow of death mm -hmm. it's the the road that leads to death that is the unknown and that we have to endure and that has always stuck with me and so during this time it just stuck with me that I'm walking in valleys. And in fact, looking at my whole life, I've always been in valleys, whether that be loss of other people in mm -hmm. my life, like my mom and my dad, my own physical health struggles as a child, whatever that might be. I've, I've always tried to dance in that valley. And when I think about it, I think about the visual of 
being in a dark place, but finding joy from the Lord, even in the darkest of times. And I'll be very honest, like that was not easy for me during these few years. Yeah. And it hasn't been easy in my past, but it's definitely the goal. That was the main, the main reason and motivation for the title. It just sort of came to me as I was thinking about the valley and joy. Yeah. I've always loved dancing, even though mm -hmm. I'm first, I'm a Baptist. Second of all, I'm a terrible dancer. I've always loved dancing, and I always likened myself to the character that Sarah Jessica Parker played in Footloose. Mm. When they went across the county line to go to a bar to dance, and of course, none of them had ever danced. Kevin mm -hmm. Bacon's character, Ren, he, you know, he's the one that was causing the ruckus about dancing. And Sarah Jessica Parker's boyfriend wouldn't dance, and so she's sitting in a chair, and she is bouncing up and down, hardly can contain herself. Mm-hmm. And that is me. Like, that is yeah. me. When music comes on, I just want to dance. And so I equate joy from dancing and put that together with sadness of the valley. It just, to me, communicated what I was feeling. Yeah. That's a good illustration there with that, that title. Exactly what you've been through and everything. Mm -hmm. Obviously, if anyone has listened to our podcast at any amount of time, they know that you and I are both believers. Um, but I don't think we've ever shared our testimonies mm -hmm. Your book is very central to your your faith. I mean that that's the under underlying thing there. And as you just said, you know, God's brought you through so many valleys. If it wasn't for your relationship with Christ, you wouldn't have been able to get through the things you've gotten through. So talk a little bit about how you actually came to know Jesus. I would say that my how I came to know Christ started in the valley. So that is mm -hmm. a time of of tragedy. Uh, we were, my family, the three of us, I'm an only child, we were in a terrible car accident when I was in the second grade, and none of us should have survived, and we all mm -hmm. did. My dad and I walked away with scrapes and bruises and cuts, and my mom was pretty severely injured with pelvic bone broken in five places. But our car was literally hit broadside and careened over the guardrail into a pig mm -hmm. field. Mm -hmm. And it was at that point that I began to realize I'd grown up in the church, I'd grown up in a Christian home. All I knew was Jesus. That's all mm -hmm. I ever heard. I was at church every time the door was open. But all of a sudden, it became very real to me that had I died, that my parents would go to Jesus, but I would not. And that was when I was seven. And then it took a while because I asked a lot of questions, and I'm a, I've been a thinker from way back. Mm -hmm. And I processed a lot, and my parents knew I was struggling with with that decision. And then finally, at the age of eight, I decided to make it official and decide and, and decided to follow Christ. And I know next episode, um, spoiler alert, I'm going to read <laughs> the first three chapters of my book. And one of those chapters uh, talks about my salvation experience and how that car accident mm -hmm. and really dancing in the valley brought me to a saving knowledge of Christ. Mm -hmm. All right. So that was what you just talked about there, how you came to know Jesus through the, the car accident. You, know, you said that was the initial valley you went through, which led you to Jesus. But then throughout your life, you're dealing with all these, these health issues of you, you eventually get diagnosed with RA, mm -hmm. um, but you're also dealing with job changes, acquisitions, having to find new jobs. Um, you've lost parents. You've lost two very close friends. And you talk about all this in your book. So mm -hmm. you've gone through all these, throughout your life, you've gone through these valleys. 
And that takes you up to 2019 when you start your fun journey into Mm. medical drama. Yes, yes. (laughs) I think we've talked about it on the podcast, but you'll, if you read the book, you'll learn. You were in the throes of that in 2020, which is when the world shut down and we're all locked away from each other. But then you're, you're locked up in rehab by yourself. And a lot of your journey, your medical journey was during the pandemic through through 2020 through pretty much 2022 i guess so pretty much the entire time you've dealt mm-hmm. with this yep. the whole world's dealing with covid what made it more difficult or what was that like going through all of that during the pandemic it was definitely horrible <laughs> <laughs> so prior to the pandemic Heather, you and the, all the rest of our ladies in our BFG, which we've talked about on our mm-hmm. podcast before, you all had set up a schedule. Like there was someone who came once a day to yeah. visit me. And besides you guys, I had other people that would visit. Being bedridden, it was it was it it helped me get through the day and get through you know the week. But then when the shutdown and the pandemic hit, I mean, I was completely locked away. It was... Very much similar to what I feel like prison would be like. Not only was was I now unable to have visitors face-to-face, the staff was just overwhelmed with daily changes in protocol. Everybody had to wear a mask on mm-hmm. staff. Um, I had to begin to wear a mask to do any kind of rehab. I mean, every re- entire rehab I had from the beginning of the pandemic all the way through till I got came home from the from inpatient rehab the last time, which was March of 2022. I wore a mask for every bit of that rehab. Mm-hmm. And that was tough. I mean, it's, you know, it's one thing to wear a mask when you've got to go out to the store and do what you got to do. But I was having to learn to walk again multiple times. Yeah. Wearing a mask, weakened, unable to put one foot in front of the other. Anybody that let, wanted to drop off things to me had to sit in isolation for three days. Because if you remember at the beginning mm-hmm. of the pandemic, we thought it was being yeah. transmitted through surface stuff. If anybody left anything, it had to sit for three days. That's kind of comical now, even though yeah. we're not that far away from the pandemic of how we thought that was really how it was being transmitted. Beyond that, once things kind of kind of got figured out, the next thing that they that happened was that we could have, you know, window visits. So some of my friends were like, yes, let's, I want to have a window visit. Mm-hmm. I'm like, no way. Like just FaceTime me because what a window visit entailed, at least at my facility, they would wheel you, which in the beginning of the pandemic, I couldn't be out of bed, but yeah. later I was, they would wheel you to a window with an aide. The aide sat there with you as if you were, you know, the common criminal <laughs> And the person would sit on the other side of the window at a, t- at a table, ju- literally just like prison. And we both had phones and then we would talk oh and gosh. we would face each other through the window. So you're on your cell phones? Yes. Yeah, so we're like on cell phones or, you know, whatever. And we're just looking at each other through a window. So just picture the movies yeah. <laughs> when you see two prisoners pick up the phone and they're talking through the plate glass. That's how it was. We were behind wow. plate glass. So I never had a window visit, and honestly, I didn't miss it. Because when I would wheel by and see them, mm-hmm. like if I was coming back from rehab or whatever, I was like, that is terrible. Like, I don't want to do that. Mm-hmm. That was difficult. I could, you know, as the pandemic, things changed and lifted. I could have 
maybe two designated visitors. After I had my amputation and I was out of ICU and I was in a step-down unit, I could have one visitor. Mm-hmm. And the nurse manager knew everything I'd been through. And she said, I want you. So Beth Blackwell was my mm-hmm. one visitor. But Jalen Cook, our pastor's wife, is another one of my best friends. And she, I mean, you know how she is. Keeping yeah. her away is hard. Yeah. And the nurse manager knew what I had been through and said, I'm putting her down as a pastor, as a clergy, mm-hmm. so that she will be able to come in the door. It's the only time that you will ever hear that Jalen Cook is a pastor. Dr. Cook was fine with it, so we went with it. For that for that instance. For that instance, yes. he was okay with her being noted as clergy. But it really was hard because the world didn't know what to do with this pandemic. And then those of us who were in facilities which were high risk, we were so isolated and, and I'm considered my I've considered myself an introvert. But after that, I craved, for six months, I was in the hospital and rehab from the beginning, November 2019 until May of 2020. When I came home, I was so in the pit, and I talk about this in more detail in my book, that I just craved for people to come and visit. Mm -hmm. People would bring me meals, which I loved, but if they would come and leave a meal and not stay, I'd be like, I didn't say anything to them, but I'm like, can you stay and eat with me? Like. I just Mm -hmm. want to be with people. Mm -hmm. And so I loved being with people. And that was not normally my temperament. I was happy to be by myself. But since the pandemic and going through what I went through, and this may be no different than you or anyone else, Heather, that went through the pandemic, but I really know why we are made for community. Mm -hmm. I think it was hard because it was so unknown. I mean, this is a once in a, a hundred year thing that, Going through it along with being in a in a health crisis is rough, and mm-hmm. I'll never forget in the in rehab you could hear televisions, of course, because everybody's got their television up so loud, <laughs> and so every day at four o'clock for a long time, our governor Andy Bashir would come on with the update daily, and you could hear everybody's wa- listening to it because you mm-hmm. could almost hear it like an intercom of what he was saying. So I started pulling it up myself because I figured, well, I'm going to have to hear it anyway. It was difficult in its own way, but I think it was probably very similar to what everybody was going through. Yeah. But being sick and down and just all the unknown was, was hard. It was hard. And you talked about how we, as a class, we were supporting you before the lockdowns and all that happened. But we continued that when you when you got home, once we were able to interact with you again, <laughs> yep. we were able to continue supporting you. And so what did that look like for you? I mean, I know because I was involved in it, but right. I'll just play dumb. What did yeah. that look like for you? <laughs> there are no words to really talk about what a support system I had. For our listeners, to give you kind of parameters, I don't have any immediate family. I am an only child. Most of my parents are gone. And, you know, my family is my church. And so my family is, when I refer to them, is is really my church family. My BFG was there. Somebody was there every day. Dana Webb, who I love her, she came once a week to do my laundry because that was one of the things that they, they, that you had to do when you're in a rehab facility. Once COVID hit, Mm -hmm. then they did your laundry because nobody could come in. When I got home, 
you know, there a, a meal, kind of a meal train continued where people would come. And not only from a BFG, but others from outside of our BFG would bring meals. And like I said earlier, I loved it. I loved having the people come, but I loved even more having people to eat with mm-hmm. and people to converse with. And Heather, that's kind of when you and I started hanging out once a week. Yeah. And it was great because I think we just gotten, we have gotten closer as mm-hmm. friends because of it. And then this podcast sort of was born out of that and the cohort. Yeah. But I've loved being able, I loved having that support. And not only, not just even food, but after my amputation, I lived in a house that was mainly carpeted except for the kitchen and the bathroom. There was no way I was going to be able to wheel myself over that carpet day in and day out with my RA. And, you know, I could do it, but I would wear, I would be pretty worn out. And Mm -hmm. when I came home from rehab, I was pretty decimated. So Jaylynn because she is the handy woman extraordinaire, talked to me about getting flooring put down in my dining room, kitchen, and bedroom, where I would mainly be going. And I would leave the other bedrooms carpeted in the living room. And so she worked with me and got a hold of of somebody that she trusted. And I was able to have him lay the laminate flooring. And my BFG ladies came in. And they packed everything away so that the flooring could be laid. Um, some of the guys, our singles pastor, Philip Brown, and some of the single guys came and moved the big stuff. The flooring got put down, and then the ladies came back. Philip and the guys came back, put the big stuff out back. The ladies came and, and moved stuff. And we we had a bunch of stuff in one bedroom and a bunch of stuff in the panel room. But we've cleaned most of that out now, and they've helped me do that. Philip um, and another guy from church, John Hardesty, helped build a ramp mm-hmm. out of my door, which gets compliments from yeah. so many people, even medical professionals, because he built it safely with like bumpers on the side yeah, and all yeah. that. I'd always get your chair caught on when I'm pushing you. Yes, she does. <laughs> she does. Uh, but it's safe for me when I yeah. go out now in my power chair that I'm, I don't feel like, you know, I'm going to go rolling off easily. So just, I mean, just time and time again, just the support of my church family. And we've said this on, I know I've said this on the podcast before, but, you know, I can't imagine going through this without my church family. And, you know, if you're out there and you don't have a church home, I really encourage you to find a church because it, they will be like family to you Mm -hmm. if you have no family, even if you do have family, because what I know from just my experience in serving at the church, Ninth and Baptist Church that we both attend, is that I'm not an isolated case. My case is odd because it went on for so long. Yeah. But we've done similar things for all sorts of people in the church. We love we love our people like family. And I could not have gone through this without my support system. Mm-hmm. There would be no way. And you, you talked a little bit about when you got back after your amputation, you got home and you had to, they redid the house for you and everything. So that was a big adjustment you had to make, learning how to navigate a wheelchair in the house and everything. What was different about your life? What's the difference between before the amputation and the way it is now? So what are some other things that make it different yeah. than what it used to be? So besides the fact that I don't have a leg. <laughs> <laughs> One of the big changes is I'm not working full-time anymore, which Mm -hmm. is what I did before. That was a big part of my life. I worked 50, 60 hours a week, usually, 
So that's a change. Mm-hmm. Thankfully, the Lord has filled my life with a lot of other things, which has been great. You know, I'm, I work volunteer at my church with our communications and discipleship pastor, Gabriel Heinerman. I, of course, have had time to write this book. I do this podcast with you, Heather. Uh, I meet with three different girls for discipleship, and I have been shadowing for counseling. So mm-hmm. those are all things that I wouldn't have been able to do in my life before. Uh, I, I am starting to freelance some with a company, startup mm-hmm. company. But honestly, a big change is that just everything takes a lot longer to do. Yeah. I have had to learn to adapt to that. And the fact that my body, and I've been reminded of this often that by my medical therapist and other folks, that your body has been through a lot. Coming back from that is, is a long journey. Yeah. And I learned when I finished outpatient rehab in June, I learned, or July, I learned that none of the therapists I worked with, PTs, ever thought I would walk again. I'm glad nobody told me that in the beginning because I think I might have given up yeah. or gotten very discouraged. And although I walk around the house some, I'm not really walking outside as much uh, or at all. Uh, but I am independent, and so mm-hmm. my independence looks different. Now I have a power chair, so if I go in my power chair somewhere, I can go by myself, taking our par- local paratransit system, mm-hmm. which has been very good for me. It has been a freedom that I hadn't had for so long. I've learned how to cook differently. I've learned how to do things differently. Um, so everything takes more time. I have my kitchen set up to where most everything I can reach from my chair, but I do have a prosthetic. So if I need to stand up, I can, you know, Mm -hmm. walk along the counter, holding onto the counter. I can do laundry. It's a, it's a little bit of a tricky situation, but I can do it. It just takes longer to get it in the, you know, I have to make multiple trips. Um, I've been able to Swiffer my floor in my power chair a little Mm -hmm. bit. So there's certain things that I've learned to do. Uh, but that's exhausting as well. So I've realized yeah. that life is going to look different. And I've had to accept that. Mm-hmm. That I'm not going to be able to do and, and be physically the way I was before. Even though I had limitations before, I pushed mm-hmm. through them. Mm-hmm. And so it didn't stop me from doing really what I wanted to do. I was able to do a lot. But... It looks different, and right now I'm I'm hoping I'm working through vocational rehab to possibly get approved, so that I can get a car with a minivan that I can pull my power chair in, and then also drive with hand controls because of mm-hmm. my amputations on my right side, I can't drive yeah. traditionally. Yeah. Uh, so that would be another huge thing down the road, but I'm trying to just enjoy life the way yeah. it is now. You have a pretty full life. I do. I do. And I'm very blessed. And honestly, I'm very thankful that I actually am able to be as independent. Mm -hmm. Dana helps me. She picks up my groceries for me most every week, throws in my laundry. Jaylen comes most every week to help me with my laundry after it's in the dryer. Mm -hmm. Christy flips it for me and then Jaylen will help me do that. I could do all those things and I have done all except putting my laundry away. That takes a little more time. But so I do still have people that help me. Heather, she's always mm-hmm. a big help. She drives me a lot of places. She, she's my ride to church. And we love that. It's kind of a bonus because we get yeah. to 
ride That's to church fun. together. Yeah, we have fun. Life is different. And I think you can either find contentment where you are. It's definitely a lesson in that. Mm-hmm. Or you can focus too much on the past. I think if you focus too much on what what things used to be, you can get discouraged mm-hmm. pretty easily. So would you say that's the biggest lesson you've learned? Or is there something even mm. more profound that you've learned through this amputation, uh, this new life you have, this one-legged life? <laughs> that's right. One of the biggest lessons I learned is that God has a plan that is not going to look like your plan. Mm-hmm. And that seems so like cliche that people say that. But I can say without hesitation, it took the worst time of my life to make my dreams come true. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of what I tell people when I talk about the, my story. I was, and, and you, you'll see it in the book, but I was just struggling. I, I wrestled with my faith through this, those two and a half, three years. And part of that wrestling came from the fact that I had an idea of what it was going to look like and it didn't turn out the way I thought it would be. Mm-hmm. And it has taken quite a bit of time for me to see that God has used this to bring me to a place where I'm doing what I love. I love writing. Yeah. I love doing this podcast. I would have never dreamed that I'd be doing a podcast. I love serving more at my church. I love meeting with girls at just young girls and women and and being able to do that. I love counseling. I love all that. And I would never have been able to do that outside of what I've been through. Mm -hmm. I'll give a bonus lesson because this is another one. (laughs) There is not a quota on our suffering. Part of what I struggled with was I've tried to live as as obedient of a life as I could to the Lord. And I just figured there's only so much that I'm going to have to deal with. As if I had forgotten what I read about Paul and Job yeah. and all of those people in scripture. And so I realized there is no quota on suffering. But the upside of that is there's also no quota on blessing. Mm. The Lord will bless us far beyond what we can think or imagine. And those are lessons I think that are the biggest ones I can take away mm-hmm. on the other side. And so how how is your faith changed or grown since then because you said you learned like you just said you learned there's no quota on suffering there's no quota on blessings and so how how has that changed your faith in Christ during my journey my faith really really struggled I really struggled with my faith not everybody knows that so people that were closest to me did you probably did I know I've Mm -hmm. talked about it with you Jalen knew Beth knew my friend Paige knew because she was with me here a lot And I mean, I was really in the pit and I have been in the pit more than once during this, this journey. Mm -hmm. So on the other side of it, I hope that I have become a different person. I'll never forget in the beginning of the journey, a friend of mine who had been through a tragic event in her own life. She'd been through a terrible car accident and had survived it and all that. She said to me, oh, Rose, your life's never going to be the same again. She said this to me probably November, December, or probably December, January of like 2019, 2020. Mm. And I'll be honest, that really, I got real defensive. I didn't say anything to her, but I thought, well, I don't care what you say, but my life is going to be the same. I'm going to go back to the life I had. And joke on me, joke's on me, because I didn't. (laughs) Yeah. 
And I think that when I look at my life change, I hope that I can say that I am more committed to the Lord, that I love him more, that I desire him more. Part of me is like, I don't ever want to have to go through that wrestling like I did. But part of me sees how that wrestling has strengthened my faith. I've listened to a few sermons from various people throughout this journey. And one of them I listened to was Matt Chandler, pastor of Village Church in Texas, who was diagnosed with brain cancer in 2009, or brain tumor, that they told him he would probably not survive. And in December of 2019, he preached a sermon looking back on the 10 years ago when he was diagnosed. And one of the things he said has always stuck with me. He said he would lay on the floor of his bathroom, weeping and crying out to the Lord. Mm-hmm. And he said, I miss that intimacy that I had, even in the darkest yeah. of times. And I feel that way that I feel like, although I was battling with my faith and sometimes even battling with the Lord in that time, I miss the fact that that is what has caused me to come out on the other side. Throughout my life, I've read books and watched interviews of people that have been through real traumatic situations like the loss of a child or a a life-altering stroke or whatever that might be. And I think, how can they talk about this so calmly and plainly? I feel like now people say that to me. They look at me like, how do you do this? And it's really, I can't apart from the Lord. So my faith, I think, I feel, I hope and pray that it has grown. Mm -hmm. I almost died three different times. And I would like to think that part of what I've changed with my faith is that I think more about eternity than I did before. And I hope that it breaks my heart more for people who don't know Christ Mm -hmm. than it ever did before. I don't know where the Lord's going to take me through this. I pray that this book will open doors where I can share my story, share the gospel. Not only that, but help people that are also in, you know, in their own time of trauma and tragedy mm-hmm. and loss. Like you said, we don't make our plan. We make our plans, but God has his plans that we you know are, <laughs> doesn't always go the way we plan. Yeah. It never does. Mm. But if you could choose, or if you have an idea of what, do you, do you have an idea of what you would like to see happen the next few years of your life? Where would you like the Lord to lead you and knowing that he will do whatever he wants. <laughs> right. Wow, that's a good question. I would say that I would love for this book to open doors where I could share my story and share the gospel more. Mm-hmm. That is a dream. When I first wrote this proposal and I first got done with the writing cohort, I just dreamed about how the Lord could open doors and give me opportunities that I could could never even imagine. And I don't know if I ever told you this, Heather, but Debbie Graham that's in our our BFG mm-hmm. has said to me for a long time, way before I did the the book, she said, I have a vision of you on the stage sharing your story. Mm-hmm. And she'll say that to me periodically. She'll say, you know, I think that's going to happen. I don't necessarily know if that's the way it's going to be, but I, I pray at least somebody comes to know Christ through this book. If at least one person does, then it's worth it all. Mm -hmm. But I would say in the future, I would love to be, I would love to write more books. I've got a couple of ideas of books I'd like to write in the future. 
which is probably a normal author thing that once mm -hmm. you get one book done, you're already thinking about the next one. Eventually, you know, right now this book will be available um, in paperback, and I hope eventually to do the audiobook of it. I feel like that's a dream as well. I would love to just serve more within my church, do more counseling, be available, and honestly hold all that loosely because I don't know what yeah. the Lord's going to do. But after going through the pain of writing a book, which is nothing compared to the pain of the two and a half years I went through, yeah, yeah. writing a book is not for the faint of heart. <laughs> uh, so the fact that I even want to entertain another book means that the Lord has, I think, equipped me to do it. So uh, that's that's probably some of my future goals. And what do you think about your ongoing life as an amputee? What's that going to look like? Because I know that you um, are involved in a support group mm -hmm. and you, you really come to enjoy that. I think there's a good group of people you get to meet with and outsider looking in, you seem to have, you know, accepted it, but you're also, you find joy now mm -hmm. that, you know, you can joke about having one leg. What was the book that someone gave you? One Foot in Heaven? One Foot in Heaven. <laughs> yeah. So somebody, a friend of mine used to go to our church found it at a thrift it was like an old book it's very mm -hmm. old and it's doesn't even have anything to do with an amputee but it's it's called one foot in heaven which my <laughs> yes i already have one foot in heaven i believe that it's up there waiting for me to connect oh, back with it funny. so yeah so i know a lot of people are probably wanting to know what life's going to look like for you physically mm -hmm. um what do you think so we know that you're trying to get approval for a van mm -hmm. and so do you think you're going to be are, are you still looking towards being able to walk and be without a chair? Or is that something you think you're going to have around? Sure. I, first, let me just say that my APT networking group is called Moving Forward. Mm -hmm. And I will link our website in the show notes. In case there's anybody listening who is an APT, because even though we're located in Louisville, Kentucky, we have a lot of members on our Facebook page that don't have a group in their area and that way you can be a part of it. And that is a great group. It has really helped to be around people who get, get you mm -hmm. from that perspective. So as far as my like, future, what is my future? And, and this is something I had to kind of come to grips with this summer when I finished outpatient therapy, I mm -hmm. mentioned to you that uh, what the therapist, none of them thought I would walk again. In fact, yeah. we have an orthopedic surgeon at our church who he never thought I would walk again. And I didn't mm -hmm. know that till after the fact. Yeah. But he had told Beth and Jalen, you know, you need to be prepared. She's probably not going to walk again. So when my PT told me as I was finishing up outpatient, she really encouraged me with the power chair. And I was a little against it at first mm -hmm. because my goal was that I'm going to walk again. After, you know, she said, well, here's, here's the thing. I want you to get to independence because you've had to be dependent for so long, and I know that wasn't your life before, that this would give you independence. And so I agreed to, okay, that's true. And it took some time for me to kind of work through that. Mm -hmm. I will say that we have a guy at our church, Seth Penny, he's a quadriplegic. Uh, he joined the church during the time I was out, mm -hmm. and we've gotten to be really good friends. And he is such an encouragement to me. Uh, he has been a quadriplegic for 15 years. He's 36, so practically half his life. Mm -hmm. And I'm just amazed at what he does and how he's able to do what he does. But after accepting the power chair and after realizing the steps of what I can do to possibly drive again, mm -hmm. 
and realizing how to use paratransit to the level that I can use yeah. it really for anything, any place I need to go. I just have to plan ahead. I can't, you know, like yesterday I had a, a doctor's appointment and I got picked up at nine o'clock for a ten fifteen appointment. Mm -hmm. And then it, the appointment didn't take, like I was done before my appointment time, didn't get picked up till noon. So I had quite a bit of time to hang out there, but I was by myself and I could do it and it was great. Yeah. So I would say like going forward, I still continue to do exercises and walk in my home and try to be more mm -hmm. functional. And like I said, I've, I've had some milestones. Um, I was, I, I baked some muffins recently. That was mm -hmm. great. What I've come to accept though is functionally to, to do things in the kitchen. It's very difficult to do it on the walker. Yeah. I'm not able to walk with a walker and do anything without at least having one hand on a stable mm -hmm. surface or the walker. So that makes it hard to carry things around, makes it hard to do something in the kitchen. But in my wheelchair, my power chair, I can do it. Same with swiffering the floor in my bathroom mm -hmm. or doing the laundry. If I, you know, I can carry something with my power chair with one hand and then direct my power chair. So I think going forward, I don't know that I will be walking outside much in the world, at least mm -hmm. not anytime soon, until I feel like I have a better balance. Yeah. Um, and that could take time, and it may or may not ever happen. I don't know. When you're dealing with RA, too. Right, and that's what my PT said. Yeah. She's like, you know, you're dealing with RA. Your body's been through a lot, for mm -hmm. one. You're dealing, And that's the biggest issue that my PT said. I want you to get a power chair because I don't want you to wear your joint, other joints out yeah. trying to navigate. If you, Heather, walk across the floor, for me to do the same action, it takes me 60% more energy. Mm -hmm. So that's 60% more energy on the exertion on my body. And so, yeah, so she said with your RA on top of it, again, I go back to the fact it hit me when they said we didn't think you would walk again. Mm-hmm. That the mere fact that I'm able to walk and, and do anything, like walk to the bathroom, walk into the kitchen to get something to drink, walk into my bedroom to get my computer mm -hmm. bag, whatever, that's, to me, that's a big win. And so my new Mount Everest <laughs> is being able to get a minivan that's equipped that I can drive myself with my power chair. That mm -hmm. would be the ultimate Mount Everest for me. Well, Rose, it's... Uh... You know, I know your story. I've read your book. That's <laughs> it's a right. great book. Everyone go out and buy it. Yes. Um, I read your book and I know your story just from being friends with you and walking with you. She not only this. read the book, guys, but she knows the story and she walked with me through yes. it. Yes. And she still cried twice. I still cried twice. I was like, is she going to live? I want to know if she's going to live. <laughs> so it's good. <laughs> it's a good story. And she does live because she's sitting right in front of me. That's right. But... Rose, we are going to, we've agreed on this before, mm -hmm. um, and we mentioned this at the beginning. So we're going to use your thought as our one single thought for this episode. So if you have one final thought for our listeners, what would that be? I'll share the one final thought, and then I'll give you the okay. backstory. So my one final thought is God is always right. When I would update people on social media of what was going on. I always ended my posts with God is always faithful. God is always good. And God is always right. Soli Deo Gloria. And there's a story behind Soli Deo Gloria with my friend Jan, who 
went on to be with the Lord in 2011. That's also in the book. That's also in the book. <laughs> and God is always faithful and God is always good is, is, and God is always right. We're just things that, to be honest, that I would post that so that I would remember that and believe mm -hmm. it because often I didn't. The God is always right came from a girl who I discipled. Actually, she was doing a, an applied ministry experience for her mm -hmm. college at Boyce College here locally for women's ministry. And I got to spend a lot of time with her talking about ministry. And she's now a pastor's wife. Her name was Jessica. And she shared with me a story that ha has never left me. It has been a story I have used so many times before I even went through this journey. And the story was that her dad was a pastor and at a church he pastored, there was a woman there. Her name was Jan and her husband had just retired and they had a retirement party. They were, he had retired, I think from the Red Cross. They were, they had just bought a cabin in Gatlinburg and their plan was to have retreats there for mm. leaders, ministry leaders of the church for any church and give them a time of refreshment and a time of renewal. Shortly after he retired, he had a massive heart attack and died. Mm. And Jessica said, you know, Rose, I went to the funeral home and I said, Miss Jan, this is so sad. I don't understand. Why mm. would God allow this? You all have these plans. You all had these mm -hmm. plans to serve him. And now he's gone. And it's you know, completely a, a right fate, you know, about face of what you were going to yeah. do. And Miss Jan said to her, Jessica, God is always right. And I've never forgotten that story. And I have used that story standing at funeral homes with people. I've used that story in my ministry a lot. Mm -hmm. But when this happened, I began to have to realize that I needed to believe it too. Yeah. And I stand, you know, I sit here on the other side of this, losing my leg, going through what I went through. And I can say, God is always right. This is, this is his plan. He knew this from the moment before I was even born. He wrote all of my days down in his book. So my final thought is God is always right. And that is our one single thought. That's right. God is always right. Well, Rose, thank you for sharing your story and for writing your book, which again, will come out on December 1st. On Amazon. On Amazon. Go out and buy it. Bless Rose with your <laughs> with your dollars. Please. And, <laughs> please. <laughs> um, struggling author. That's right. And share it with friends. It makes it'll make a great Christmas yes, gift. It'll make a great great gift. All right. And then the next episode, as we mentioned, Rose will be reading you're gonna be reading the first three chapters of yes, your book. That's correct. And so that will be our next episode coming up on December sixth. And until next time, don't follow your heart, follow God. We hope you've enjoyed One Single Thought. Our theme music is provided by Lindsay Cook, and we're so happy you joined us. Please be sure to share this episode with a friend, and don't forget to subscribe so you won't miss a single episode. We'd love it if you'd rate and review our podcast so more people can find us and join our tribe of listeners. 